Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, welcome back to another all-new X's for Podcast, the show where we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, and marvels week after week through their many monthly titles. Now, I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And I could not celebrate this Marvel Fanfare Friday without a little bit of help from Nathan, who's with me this now. Hey everybody, it's Nathan, and I am being a good boy, unlike those cats in Marvel Meow. I was like, oh, and you can find me online at Dazzler AOA. That's Dazzler, like in the Age of Apocalypse on Twitter. Well, thank you so much because I definitely said you're here with me at now. So I really appreciate anything that distracts from that. <laughs> so we have, as a team, like devoured the entirety of the Infinity Line. And I really found myself fucking struggling to figure out how to cover Marvel Meow because it's the kind of thing that's like, it's just so stupid that I love it. Like yep. in a good way. It's it's like Marvel Zombies, but the complete opposite. <laughs> exactly the complete opposite i love marvel zombies for its stupid gore and this is just like such cute stupid cuteness i'm like oh it's really difficult not to like cheer for this because one of the things we've talked about a bit on this coverage of the infinity line is that it's a little difficult to peg down what marvel wants us to take from the infinity line when i think about stories like x-men green and i contrast it with things like what we're going to talk about today i have a really hard time appreciating the infinity line holistically nathan how do you feel about the variance in content where some stuff is basically a 22 pager that they break down into an infinity content and some of it is memes (laughs) and what we're covering right now is definitely fallen into the meme category but i think the way i can enjoy it holistically is to just think of the marvel infinity line as a beautiful way to showcase stories that might not have gotten print otherwise like x-men green features a lot of you know cd list characters that you know you probably wouldn't want to headline your main Ekman book and you know like alligator loki and marvel meow are just so fucking cute that like you know could you really sell a book of it you'd have to like compile everything together and you know but like this way you're able to get some creators out there that maybe aren't as well known and get characters who are not as well loved maybe and get them a spotlight and i actually really love how you presented that because one of the two books we're talking about today did exactly that Now, the books we're talking about today are Alligator Loki Infinity Comic Issues 1 and 2 by Alyssa Wong, Bob Quinn, Pete Patazis, and as always, the amazing Infinity team who do an incredible job reworking these into the beautiful format they're in. And we're also going to be taking a look at Marvel Meow Infinity Comic by Now Fuji, which is a continuation of Now's hugely popular Marvel Instagram feed cat comics, which were collected into a specialty hardcover. Now, here's where shit gets crazy. That hardcover, not released by Marvel, released by Scholastic. Whoa! Okay, but I I can dig it. I can dig it. It's all ages, so you want to have it out there for Scholastic to increase the potential readership for these characters. So I I can dig it. I agree. I think it's the kind of thing that kind of coffee table presents really well. Like, you can just get that for someone that likes cats and really liked Captain Marvel. 
because the original hardcover does focus primarily on Chewie, who is, for those who are not aware, Captain Marvel's amazing pet. And, you know, one of the things that I love that we love, Nathan, is the idea of Carol. She often gets used um, space ACAB, but she is, at her heart, a tremendous, very serious person. So giving her a magic cat was just one of those brilliant moves. How do you feel about Chewie? Carol has gotten way too serious for me over the years. I personally miss space pirate Carol, who's out there like, you know, I'm a star jammer, like, whatever, I'm binary, you know, I miss that Carol, and she was a little bit more fun, it seemed like, even though, like, she was going through a horrible, traumatic time, she was a little bit more fun, and anything that can bring Carol to that fun place again is going to really make me enjoy. I think that's part of the magic of Marvel Meow. Opening up with Marvel Meow number one, I, first of all, could not believe how good this art was. That is, like, first and foremost, this art is spectacular, and it is magical. The color choices are so unique. I feel like now Fuji really prepared what felt at times like a high fantasy, high energy manga, and then contrasted it with kind of like quiet Saturday morning cartoon intimacy. How did you feel about this really daring visual interpretation of characters like Black Widow and everybody's, I guess, somewhat least favorite sad boy Winter Soldier? <laughs> oh, poor sad boy Winter Soldier. As starting to get a lot more into just like manga in general, like I, I'm loving to see, and even with like Demon Days, we saw it too, a bridging between the style, like the Japanese style with, you know, the Marvel style. So anytime that I can see those two things bridge over, I'm absolutely fucking in love with it. I'm like, holy hell, sign me up for more. I love the feeling of what it transported us to. Seeing Winter Soldier in this comic, I'm like, oh, I might actually be willing to read some more Winter Soldier. He actually looks kind of like a cool emo boy. But like, normally I'm like, ugh. But he looks so cute in this. I have a really intense, like, not interest in Bucky Barnes as a character. I feel you. I feel you. I, you know, it's really funny. If you ask me how I feel about most comic iterations of a MCU character, I'm usually much more attached to the comic iteration because I have a lot more to attach to. But, you know, reasonably speaking, there's not that much more MC proper Bucky than there is MCU Bucky when we're talking about, you know, this Winter Soldier iteration of the character where, you know, a lot of recent Bucky stuff kind of just gets swept because they really weren't sure what they were trying to do with him. So, like, most times I'm like, no, you have to keep the original comic character. But in this instance, I would rather just, like, sit next to Sebastian stand and suggestively nibble on each other's necks. <laughs> Is there like a form I could sign up to be for next for that? Because that sounds amazing. I feel the same way about Winter Soldier. Winter Soldier, I found it really hard to get into Winter Soldier stories. His presence sometimes will take me out of the story. So I, I'm definitely much more attached to the MCU version of Winter Soldier because I think that was at least a more streamlined presentation of the character. And yet, for me, the only character I can really say, yes, I prefer MCU version as well. One of the reasons that that makes this story work so well is I just do not give a negative 0.7 shit about what these cats do because it's not ending the world. They can destroy whatever they want. They're just cute kitties. They're just having a day. They are. Oh, my God. And when they, like, collapse in the puddle at the end, just in the big old cuddle puddle, I'm like, oh, that is like, I want to go in and just watch the big old cuddle puddle because it's so adorable. Yeah. But let's be honest. They do what cats do. Cats destroy stuff. They're little buggers that 
we love to hate. And this perfectly encapsulates what would happen if you put three superhero cats together. And that's kind of the magic of this Infinity comic. I would not. I would. I just wouldn't pay the money. I I really wouldn't pay three ninety nine. And I want this to exist. I love that this exists. I love that it's eight panels and that it's a fun breeze. Agreed. Agreed. It's such a fun breeze. I love. You know, there's times when you feel like don't read when you feel like you don't want to read a story with a lot of words in it. So like this was the perfect type of story for those type of days. You just want a little fun read. You know, you don't want to have to read a whole lot, but you want the visuals to tell the story. And I think without being word heavy, this tale was able to tell an amazing story. And speaking of not getting word heavy, the Spider-Man and Black Cat focused. And as of the time of recording this, we are one day from Black Cat entering Contest of Champions. So I am very excited for the Black Cat time I'm having right now. But this Black Cat appearance in this cute little Spider-Man Marvel Meow story that represents the second tale. I don't know that I exactly get everything that happens on panel. I don't know where the gorgeous blonde hot man comes from at the end, but I'm glad he does. Uh, I mean, I think he was just a, a lovely bit of randomness that just happened to appear. And, you know, Felicia does not look upset that she landed in his magnificently buff arms. Holy hell. And like, you know, why is the cat with the Doctor Strange cloak falling, though? You think he'll be able to fly. Okay, so I have to be honest with you. I actually repeatedly did, like reread to make sure that the cats didn't transform into those guys. And then <laughs> when I saw the cats again, I was like, oh, what if it's a time thing? Oh, no, it's probably just guys. Yeah, good call. So I definitely <laughs> with you. And yeah, you would think he could levitato himself all over the place. But no, he's a he's a kitty. At, at least he lands on his feet. They always do. They always find a way. But I, I do have to say that first panel when you see Felicia just swinging in and she's a cat burglar so she's got her cats with her and I was like oh holy hell this is perfect like why doesn't she always have cats with her when she's fine okay and I'm so glad that we're talking about places you might not think Felicia is going to show up because (laughs) I was like so you know Nathan and I are both big Jason Aaron's Avengers readers you know sometimes the story is a little more ridiculous than others and sometimes it's pretty perfect but I'm a big fan of that run Nathan I know you've enjoyed uh you know the parts we've discussed as well (laughs) and I um uh so in the third one of of marvel meow inexplicably black cat joins jason aaron's avengers and i need it so bad i don't know what to say yes right like i almost had to look at the end credits to make sure that jed mckay didn't sneak in and write this issue i need that i need the team up so much you know like give it to me like holy hell like yes please dr shapiro is the hero that we've all needed this whole time first of all i love that there is just this very serious science cat who is living in the avengers compound here to save the day there's also something really wonderfully agendered about a lot of the presentations of masculinity in anime and manga. You know, of course, there's very hyper-masculine, you know, very dripping testosterone kind of characters. You know, they just cry dicks or whatever. (laughs) But there is something so kind and soft and gentle about the presentation of Captain America in this third Marvel meow that I just think is lovely. I think it's really considered and sweet. And for that, I love that we are moving to an age where we get this dexterous sampling of so many different styles of art. You know, Nathan, your guys' coverage earlier this week of Demon Days was so terrific, especially for the ways you guys really honed in on the things that make Eastern and Western art look so beautifully different. It's 
especially in issue three of this, the presentation of Captain America. And even before that, Black Panther, like looking adorably at this cat and Blade being shocked, but open armed about a cat, like that sort of representation of these characters with their masculinity is something that a lot of these characters, I think, need to show more often. Like, I think the softening of some of these really hard male heroic characters is, is something great. The beautiful art of when, like the expression on Steve's face when he looks into his cat's eyes and picks him up and he's like, I love you, baby. Like, he doesn't say that, but that's what his face says. Like, it's just perfect. Yes. Oh, he says it. He says it with the stars and stripes. He says it. And, like, speaking of things that say things, now, Fuji, you are a fucking genius because I have never been more impressed with what felt like incidental art as I was by the frowning lettering. I could not believe there were frowning word bubbles. It's just so lovely to see in a comic that you associate with, you know, standard American comics bringing over elements of manga that make the manga come alive in a way that we could use a little bit more of over here. And throughout all of these issues, like I have to say, like my favorite thing that I have learned to appreciate from being on X for podcast is probably lettering. It's something I had noticed before, but the more we started to talk about it, the more you could see how great lettering can really transform a piece and make it even more than it really is. And just like the use of this lettering in this whole web series is amazing looking at dr shapiro's word bubbles where he's like go cats it's so amazing it took me a minute to go like why can't he talk but then i was like oh that's what tony stark put his device on him for but it's so fun and it's really transforms the piece into something more and you know steve is also a huge fan of lettering and i remember one of steve's earliest appearances on x's for podcast us talking about todd klein and the incredible lettering job on sandman so like it's something that everyone that comes to this show we all really walk away like huge lettering people and that's something that I think is so necessary to the continued evolution of comics and it's why I'm so proud that we've had like Ariana Mar on so many times because she doesn't just talk about lettering she talks about the art of lettering and why lettering is a valuable part of the process and every one of our team has learned from that in a way that I think has made us better comic critics definitely agreed now when I look at reviews and I see reviews of a comic and they don't mention the lettering at all. I kind of usually get a little upset because it's such an important part of the medium. And I know so many of us, until we really stop to look at it and look at its importance, don't really give it the credit it's due. And, you know, speaking of letters and that kind of notice, it was hard not to notice that the Alligator Loki number one comic did not have a credited letterer in the content. That is true. Yeah, it definitely threw me off when I was recording my notes. Once again, there was no credited letterer in the second issue. There is no letterer credited in the creative credits. So I'm hoping that perhaps the lettering is handled by Bob Quinn, who, you know, other than the logo, which the logo is credited to a logo creator, the lettering is for the most part incidental to the art. So perhaps it's that Robert Quinn, as he's credited here, is taking on the lettering himself 
himself. But it definitely, because lettering has become so important to us, I caught that and I was like, huh. Yeah, because usually I've started to, when I read the Infinity Comics, I usually scroll to the end first to see the same of it. Because I'm like, <laughs> okay, wait. I'm like, cool, let me see what, and then like with no letterer, I'm like, mm, is this one of the ones with no thought bubbles? And then you see all the intricate actual signs that are in the issue. Yeah. So I, I'm guessing that had to have been Bob Quinn. I want to talk for a moment about how good this alligator fucking Loki comic is and how maybe it's possible that Alyssa Wong tried to give us a, a hint that perhaps this bad mamma jamma was on his way when she appeared on our show and said if she could write any character, she'd love to write Loki. <laughs> and now I see that she kind of pulled a bait and switch on us, didn't she? Just like Loki did in the pages of Family Bonding, the first issue of the Alligator Loki comic, which I think we can agree this is the Nick Klein Thor from the Donnie Cates run visually, right? That's what it looks like to me. I was going to defer to you on that because I'm like, Nico's the Thor expert. It looks exactly like that. It's got some uh, some slightly cartoonier elements. And that's one of the reasons that when you said to me, Nico, I want to cover this. I was like, <laughs> yes, Bob Quinn does something here that I think is necessary. When I think about Thor, I, yeah, I mean, you know, I think about, you know, when I go to the gym and I'm like, I have to look like a Hemsworth. I have to look at him. Sweat till you look like a Hemsworth. Pass out on the bench till you look like a Hemsworth. You know, you get that in your head. And then I'm watching my favorite news fails on YouTube and Chris Hemsworth. Hemsworth literally just walks into a news broadcast and is like, oh yeah, no, my family's been laying low here for the last year. We're heading out soon. Yeah, let's talk about this area for a minute. And just starts being charming with the news crew. There is no fucking way Thor could be as good as Thor is in the MCU without Chris Hemsworth having that kind of humor. Right. And Bob Quinn put that right into this art. It is so... Because that's something that we both love, the levity of Asgard yes. as well. And I yeah. just, this was so right to cover with you. I was so excited when you asked about it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was before I even read it. I was like, "Wait, Alyssa Wong and Bob Quinn? Like, this is a book made for me. Like, two of my favorite creators out there. Like, I think two of the best, like, up and coming, really need to be household names in the business. Like, together on a book. Yes, Nico, we have to do this. And then when I read it, I was like, "Oh my god, this is even better than I could have even imagined. It's so fun and it's so lighthearted. And I needed to see that in Thor because Thor's been very Thor has his moments where he's very lighthearted, but lately his runs have been very heavy, right?" So I needed to see that levity in Thor again. Yeah, you know, preferably the heaviness of Thor's sadness is balanced with the heaviness of the hammer is my penis. <laughs> and that's, you know, part of it. Like one of the things is Thor is a dumbass party boy. Mm -hmm. That's part of who he is. He is a big dumb fool who gets into all kinds of trouble. And that is part of what I love him for. And if you can't have Thor willing to laugh at himself, I feel like we're not talking about the same character and the willingness to lean into silly levity the way this creative team did in this issue was such a charming bit of reassurance that people still remember how to have fun in comics. Yeah. And I'd love to get your take on this sort of almost meta self-aware that Thor could have a great time with his brother if his brother just couldn't talk. <laughs> the face on Thor once he realizes he's pulled out an alligator Loki is just epic. Just the excitement on his face. He's like, oh, this is a Loki I could love. And then like alligator Loki's like, oh, what, what what am I in for? It's perfect. It's perfect. I love it. Thor knew this is exactly what he needed. He was like, yes, a version of my brother I can go have fun with. And that's what we got. One of the things that most sells that is Pete 
has this his incredible colors, the mm-hmm. vividness of his rainbow road, the warmth of the tone of the alligator's hide, because alligator scales, alligators, alligator teeth, these are scary fucking things, and they're fucking alligators. They're a goddamn dinosaur. So you could have made this horrifying, but instead it was light, and it was enjoyable, and it was sweet, and I this I would pay $3.99 for. Oh, this I would. The panel where Loki, Thor, Jane, and Runa are on a roller coaster ride. I would pay $3.99 for that alone. <laughs> Absolutely. Especially if it was some sort of silly, lighthearted kind of what if Asgard got trapped in an arcade murder world <laughs> amusement park. Like, you could make an arc out of this. I would not be mad if you made an arc out of this. And it's why I loved reading the recent Thor and Loki Gorahiru series because I go to these characters more than most. Right, because like I guess I guess I get a little shitty about X Men AUs. I guess you know when it's Demon Days and it's that far off the beaten path. I love it. Oh yeah. When it's I'm not a Marvel 2099 guy in general, but I definitely have no affection for X Men 2099. Okay, but see, I love AUs and I do not love X Men 2099. So that might not just be your distaste of X Men AUs. That might just be you didn't connect with it like I didn't connect with it. I know a lot of people did, so I don't want to disparage it. But I'm not. Exactly. Yeah. It did not connect with me at all. But like Thor, I always connect with Thor AUs. And also, side note, I always connect with Exiles stories. Don't know what that's about. Exiles can't ever bother me. I think because I almost, Exiles has such a Mojoverse quality about it all the time. It's like you're watching it. So it's it's like a cerebrally distant place for me. But yeah, Thor AUs always work for me. I think because any version of Thor could secretly be an AU in high you know and okay. i i just thought this was charming and the plush hammer and i love that you know there's that jane and runa moment because runa would want to hang with a loki alligator <laughs> she totally would like jane I- i'm glad she let herself go and is having fun with this here but runa would be leading the charge on that for sure 100 and one of the things that's so silly perfect about this is bob quinn's exquisite attention to continuity it sounds dumb um, but when they put on the silly Thor hats in the gift shop, they're still wearing them on the attraction a moment later. And you can tell I worked at Disney when they're still wearing them on the attraction after the gift shop, right? <laughs> so there's just kind of a, a joyfulness that I don't get it from enough comics. There's a a whimsy and like it's in the detail work that the ride vehicle that they're in, the horse creature, actually does have hooves and they're bent under his body. And it's shown in the final panel and the track which could have been any roller coaster track is specifically a rainbow bridge i just love that sort of i care about canon without yeah. making it all about continuity we've seen some fantastic bob quinn work on the x-men stories that we've read Alyssa wong's wrote a lot of very in-depth character stories it was really fun to see both of these two creators have an amazingly fun time with this because this is such an amazingly fun issue like it showed a nice different side 
to these creators that allowed us to go like, hey, cool, they can do the fun and serious stuff, but they can also do this crazy, cute, out of this world kind of stuff too in that level. Well, from creators showing off dexterity to some alligators revealing their true horns, Hammer Time was so cute. I love that panel where Alligator Loki is standing on his back, little flipper fuckers, and he's got the and like the headpieces on, and he's looking all mischievous. Oh, what a good little bad boy! Oh, I just want to reward him with all the treats for playing tricks. I love him. <laughs> he's such a scamp. Like Alligator Loki is the scampiest, like the shrimp scampiest. Best parts of Loki, Loki, but without any of the he's killing people. I'm kind of like, well, he's a dinosaur, so this is really good for him. Agreed, right? Like, all he was doing is trying to steal the hammer, and, like, I love Thor's face when he saw him. I was like, oh, poor Thor. It's so fun to see a tale where there's some high stakes. You don't want alligator Loki getting a Mjolnir, but also he's not out there, like you said, murdering people. He is just trying to get his hammer that he won. He thinks he earned. He's knocking all of Thor's pictures off the table like a cat, but he's an alligator. (laughs) Which, I don't know if anybody caught that. This episode is themed to magic animals. That was really how I could justify doing Marvel Meow. So, And that was the whole thing. So, you know, I'm so glad you brought up knocking over all the pictures because from the stained glass image of Odin on the opening page to the wonderful photo lineup, one of the things I love about what they chose to do with elements of this is the way they chose to play against expectation. It is so cute that Thor would have posed photos of himself with Iron Man, Vision. I'm going to assume that's Jane in human form. It's got to be Wanda then and Hulk and Captain America and even Spider-Man. And of course it ends with him having a dramatic look at my own cover image picture (laughs) of of himself. Yeah. And you know, the more that I think about, because when I first read this, I was like, oh, I'm kind of disappointed that Alyssa went, you know, Alligator Loki is such a bad boy. But I'm like, no, no, he's being a good little Loki. And that's even kind of the point of Journey into Mystery by Karen Gillan. Loki is being a good boy when he's up to mischief. If he's not killing people, then he's being a very good boy. But if Loki's getting up to harmless mischief, if he's just fucking up Thor's bedroom, that's really not so bad for a Loki. And it's because he loves Thor that he can focus all of his energy on just terrorizing his brother instead of destroying Midgar. That's a really huge sign of growth for the character. And as dumb as that sounds, I feel like I really learned something about Loki from Hammer Time the more I've thought about it. You know, I would agree. It shows, even though he's being a bad boy, thank you for bringing that up, because that really does make me think of him not just being a bad boy, but he's actually being the best version of himself as an alligator, and I love it. Because, you know, as an alligator, he is a natural predator. So by putting him in a truly ferocious creature, anything less than ferocious that he does is instantly better. And I just hope these keep coming out, you know, both of these. They're harmless fun in a way that I find engaging and beyond engaging, they are like you said earlier, quick reads. Sometimes I don't want to sit down to those Kushala comics that were each clearly originally 48 pages. They they were some of the longest reading experiences of my life as an Infinity comic and then you've got this, which is 30 seconds. I like having 30 second options. I do too. I would buy this issue if this was out as an issue at the shop just alone just for the face that Thor makes when Jane calls him. It is the best and I absolutely 
absolutely love it. My second favorite part is where Thor's taking a picture of the sleeping Loki. Oh, I know. He's such an excited little doggy daddy. He's such a good doggy daddy. I'm so proud of Thor. You know, it's hard for Thor to care about other people. So when he shows it, it makes me very, very glad. Yeah, agreed. One of the things that I thought was the most impressive was what both books chose not to show. There are just some things that really wouldn't make sense in these examples. For instance, I commend now Fuji for never showing Ghost Rider's face. I don't think it would have looked quite right in the art style. And to simplify matters by simply leaving his head on fire for all that this is worth in canon, I think that was just the right move. And contrastedly, while I would have loved to have gotten some close-ups of Jane and Runa, that they were recessed for the most part in the first family bonding story where they were not shown in great detail. It allowed it to be about Thor and Loki together in a way that focused on these characters for the amount of time we had. Agreed. These two series that we've covered have really, to me, showcased the Infinity line in a way that I haven't seen a lot of them do as well. I think it works really well to these quick stories. I think really art-heavy stories, you know, with the with the very focused storyline, work the best for Infinity Comics. And there's so many moments in these that I can just sit here and stare at, especially in Hammer Time, that like I could just sit here and stare at these for hours because they're so in-depth and so deep detailed which is really great for you know what is essentially like a value-added service uh you know the infinity comics do we really subscribe to marvel unlimited for the infinity comics no we, we subscribe to get the huge back catalog of comics but it's really a, a nice addition to the service with comics like these i completely agree i come for the classics but i have been tremendously pleased by all of the additional material and if they i, I have no reason to think this i am not projecting anything i I am simply saying, if they were to say the new material is like $2 more a month, I'd pay it. I feel like I get more than $2 a month in Infinity Comics pretty comfortably. And it is definitely in the last year been such a, like a personal moment of joy in my day when there is a new Infinity Comic. I read stuff that I wouldn't normally read just because it's an Infinity Comic. I like the change in format. I like supporting these creators. I hope the hit count gets recorded. They're just, yeah, they're a really nice added value. You're absolutely right. I definitely do read these characters that I wouldn't read otherwise because one it's free like cool if I want to see more about this character let me go jump in and I think it's also a way that Marvel can use to sell additional comics for fans like us who maybe say we don't like Winter Soldier and we read this Winter Soldier Infinity comic and oh wow I kind of like the character now let me see what's going on in this run I agree completely so Nathan until we return to talk more about these amazing Infinity comics and as always our endless coverage of new titles from Marvel where can everybody find you online you can find me online at desleray on twitter and instagram mainly twitter but sometimes instagram as always guys you can find the show on twitter at x's for podcast and you can find me over at nico action n-i-c-o-a-c-t-i-o-n and i can't believe i get to say this you guys can find me in the upcoming young men in love anthology which you can pre-order from diamond comics or from your local lcs it features incredible talents like anthony Oliveira, cena grace joe glass terry bloss and more like half of those people are people we talk about on this show and the cover is by kevin wada i'm so thrilled and we hope you guys enjoy this next segment (music) 
Hey, everybody, it's Nico again, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And I'm TK. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at xnatexgrayx. So we are having more fun than we can possibly imagine with this incredible electrosance that's been going on in the Marvel Universe. And that means that there are so many incredible Electra titles right now. For a character that frequently doesn't have a book, we are drowning in Electra's goodness. And that means we're here to talk about Electra Black, White, and Blood number three's two remaining stories. Now, TK, before we can even get into that, I just want to spend one more second and talk about how much we loved that typhoid story that kicked this whole thing off. Oh, yeah. I mean, it had a snowball effect that is just growing bigger and bigger that I feel like neither of us has any idea when it's going to end at this point. No, absolutely. As a matter of fact, our reading of that issue led me to reading a little bit more at TK's recommendation. TK, you had mentioned Typhoid Fever featuring, well, Typhoid Mary. And like, I feel like this is one of those books that I missed out on because it had come out right before Hox Pox. So I wasn't quite reading, but like this has put us on like a deep Mary trajectory. Yeah, very much so. Typhoid Fever comes out in 2018. It's three books, one featuring Spider-Man, one featuring the X-Men, one featuring Iron Fist, all interacting with Mary, who is in peak Mary form. And the cover of the trade caught me at a comic shop because it's Jean in the red armor, which is a very short period of time, but one of my favorite Jean looks. And so I just picked it up to look through. And the idea of Mary and Jean interacting gave me very much a similar feeling to what we had talked about in the previous Electra Black, White, and Blood story split by Anne Nascenti. Just this idea that it's really plausible that these two characters would know each other, would have some sort of interaction, and that it might actually be a really important one for defining both characters. And, you know, so I was so excited by your description of this new book and this idea that, well, new book, but new to me, older book, that there was some connectivity between Mary and the X-Men, which we had said, you know, there's some, but for a mutant, she really doesn't come up in the X-Books as often as we'd like. And I never really got over the fact that she didn't really belong in Iron Fist season two. And, you know, whatever your issues are with Iron Fist, like I have, and I do have issues with the Iron Fist TV show, you know, her usage there was just not spectacular in general. So that we got a one shot that put Iron Fist with Mary felt very of the show. Yet I did find the issues really exciting. And I mean, I don't want to get too into it because we're definitely going to cover these issues in part because we're going to have the writer of the show on next week. I'm so excited. We have Clay McLeod Chapman coming on to discuss not just Typhoid Fever, but a work that's inexplicably kind of a result of it, right? So Typhoid Fever went right before the Zdarsky run of Daredevil, which leads into Devil's Reign, and Devil's Reign gave us villains for hire, and Clay McLeod Chapman wrote that too. So I'm really excited to get him in and like talk about how it's so funny that you said it's a chain reaction. And I was kind of like, maybe it's not a chain reaction. But if you think like, it's so funny because like Typhoid Mary leads to her involvement in Daredevil and Devil's Reign, which leads to all of this Electra going on right now. So it really is like endlessly cyclical. And even if one thing isn't necessarily causing the other, they're all tied together and linked in ways that I think for a reader are just enjoyable to look at. But then when you think about the possibilities for future storytelling, you know, if anybody ever said, came to me and said, hey, you know, I got a job at Marvel or I need to pitch something to Marvel or you know, they just gave me a Hell's Kitchen book, this is a stack of stuff that I would pick up and say, read through all of this. There are story ideas in here that are endless and interesting. And I love that you 
use of endless because that's one of the things that we've perhaps felt the most about these incredible characters that are getting all of this new and amazing exposure through works like Devil's Reign and focusing on these characters in Black, White, and Blood. There's been so many Wolverine stories, right? And I, I love that we have a patch miniseries. I do, but I stand by my statement that what would have made this patch miniseries better is if it was Laura or Dokken acting as Patch. That would have been a really interesting turn on it, and you could still have Logan there in some capacity. Maybe they're chasing Ogan, and it turns out Logan is pretending to be Ogan to get the real Ogan out of hiding. I don't give a shit what you want to do. But like, I've had the same characters do the same things so many times that even if I hadn't thought that Typhoid Fever was exciting, even if I hadn't thought Mary's new role in Devil's Reign was exciting, even if I hadn't seen Electra elevated to the status of Daredevil and do it just as well as Matt ever did, I would just be excited to see something different. And that's part of what I think this has really been a celebration of, something different. Yeah, and I think, again, tying it all the way back to what we're here to talk about, the Electra Black, White, and Blood stories, they're not all perfect. We don't love all of them, but I think we love that they are all different from each other and they're all different for Electra. They add a dimension to a character who in some ways is like a Wolverine in that she is often present, very recognizable, and serves a lot of narrative function, but different from Wolverine in that we don't have four billion stories about her that give her character so many dimensions and facets that she's like a completely invaluable gem. We're starting to build that mythos for the character now. It's really exciting to follow, and that's why issues like this one are particularly exciting to talk about. And I love that we're talking about this sort of format that Black, White, and Red, uh, Black, White, and Blood allows. <laughs> not that this issue did not take full advantage of the fact that it was red. Lots of good redness. It is. A, a, you know, I thought that the colors in this issue really did pop. Mm-hmm. I find myself fascinated by the history of Marvel's sort of return to black and white in general and the characters they've chosen to focus on in the course of all of this. It's really easy to say, oh, a black and white comic? What? You mean you just didn't color the book? But that's actually not what black and white art is about. Black and white in comics is actually a different form of inking. It's a different amount of shading. It's different thoughts on the line weight because you know that different things are going to play in different ways. For instance, when you pencil and ink, I'm married to a colorist, so like this is part of my brain at this point. When you pencil and ink, you pencil and ink leaving room for colors because you're thinking of the page holistically. Yeah, you make the best piece of fucking art you can make, but you make the best piece of fucking art you can make knowing everyone else has to do their best job too, right? It's a choir in a lot of ways and all the voices need to stand out together and Marvel has definitely leaned a little bit more into black and white formatting over the last couple of years than perhaps they originally did. I've mentioned a few times in the last couple of episodes that I worked at a comic shop from 04 to 05 so I happened to be at the comic shop at exactly the right time to pick up a copy of Wolverine number 32 penciled by Kare Andrews written by Mark Millar and it is a really interesting issue and I'm not just being like learned by Mark Millar. I'm not the biggest enemy of the state fan. (laughs) So this is like the 13th issue on a run that I still don't know how I feel about. But, oh my god, Kare Andrews can draw anything. Like, literally anything. And Wolverine number 32 really kind of was not the right thing to get me interested in black and white comics. Now, TK, I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to read this bizarre issue, but it's a story set in a World War II concentration camp, and I have made my opinions on Marvel needs to steer the fuck clear of World War II and Nazis as much as they can. I understand it's intrinsically linked to Cap, but we do not always treat 
these things with the sensitivity they deserve. Yeah, I I mean, we know Cap and Magneto are two characters for whom the Holocaust and World War II are very important. They're inextricably linked in a way that I think seven to eight times out of ten, it can be done positively in a way that is authentic and true to an experience that is very important for people to always remember. Once you step outside those two characters, it starts to get very dicey and basically a coin toss about whether or not it's going to be borderline offensive. I think Wolverine is often a character that falls into the at best superfluous, at worst offensive category. This is a story that was coming out when I was starting to return to Marvel Comics, and that was really primarily for me about Grant Morrison's new X-Men, and I have never been the biggest Logan person. My Logan is the polyamorous boyfriend of Jean Grey, Scott Summers, and Emma Frost, and unless it's that kind of story, I tend to not super duper care about Logan. Oh, and the father of all the other Wolverines. Like any of those stories, I'm here for him. A lot of other stuff, I just, it doesn't sink in with me. So even though I've done a lot of backlog reading of stuff that I wasn't into at the time, this is one that I've continued to steer clear of for a number of reasons, both including the setting of it and also just kind of the the desire never to oversaturate myself on Logan. So I love him for what he is to me. Yeah, you know, saying never oversaturate yourself on Logan. <laughs> tough. It's tough. It is tough. Considering I have a list of from 2005 through now, 11 projects that Marvel released that in some way or another are black, white or black, white and red. Now, again, I am not counting things like the original fucking Herb Trimp and Chris Claremont, Captain Britain mag that was in color for a minute and then went black and white, which let me tell you, the, the, the fucking colors on like they used to, okay, rewind, funny story. Captain Britain was made so cheap back in the day they didn't have enough money to pay the colorist for the last page so they would always just say that the last page is a black and white color it in yourself special and they would act like it was a coloring page so then years later they had people do quick colors to make it look consistent and some of the jobs reprinting and mastering those pages not necessarily the original work itself but I thought that they included people's actual like sent in colored pages because like the scanning on it was so rough and so bad so there really is something to be said for knowing why you do black and white keeping black and white things black and white when that's appropriate adding color I am not here to judge anybody because I can think of a lot of black and white things that had color added to them that were incredible and I can think of some misses I will say this I'm a huge Bewitched fan like huge and I have the originals in black and white if the black and white was available because I don't always think adding color afterward is the hottest touch I don't know about you and like I guess this is really off topic, but I am curious. How do you feel about adding colors to things after the fact? And that's, of course, unless it's like a racially sensitive thing, please, by all means, fucking update those colors. Make it right by people's standards now. I think that's a really important thing. If there is a cultural reason to update the colors, always do so. Um, And I think it is a worthy project to properly color characters as they ought to be. Otherwise, the question is, how much intention was there behind the black and white And was there any yearning for color that simply was not able to be produced due to budgetary reasons or technical?
technical reasons. If somebody said, you know, I always dreamed of making this in color, but I couldn't at the time, I feel like for them, if they want to go back and do the thing that they always wanted to do, I would love to see that project, even if maybe I'd fallen in love with the black and white one. I think anything where it was like, we're doing this intentionally in black and white, and somebody comes in and says, oh, we have this black and white piece, we could color it in and make more money. That's the type of stuff that I read. Oh, yeah. If anybody's like, let's change the art after the fact, like, but then where's the intention? And like, right. I don't think every comic book needs clear, defined intention. Like, some art can just be art to be art, right? Like, as somebody who creates, sometimes I create just for silly and for fun, and I'm not like, yes, this is my Nessendorma. And then, you know, there's times I'm like, no, this is the shit. This is the very it, and y'all should pay attention. Like, and it's okay to have both, but this idea that you can just dramatically change the art from its intention specifically for a, an aesthetic purpose that doesn't match the idea. Like, I think my black and white comics should feel like black and white makes sense. And for the most part, I've been pretty impressed with Marvel's attempt to do black and white comics some justice. Now, in the earliest days of this Marvel getting kind of vanity with it, I know DC has had a thousand of these vanity projects. Like, DC, for as many books as they put out, they really do manage to not have coloring on a lot of them. <laughs> DC does so many beautiful black and white specials. The Batman and Black and White Omnibus comes to mind. Sunday comics. DC's done a lot of really amazing stuff with black and white. But of course, you know, we're a Marvel-based show. So we're here just to talk about the Marvel releases. And yes, I know there are tons of comics outside of Marvel. So in 2005, we received a black and white edition of Wolverine number 32. Now there was an A edition, which was full color cover and full color insides. But the black and white edition was made available. And as it is Kare Andrews, there is a collector's market for it, for sure. He's a big collectible guy. In 2008, which should have been like the greatest piece of all time, Brian K. Vaughn and Eduardo Riso came together to tell a three-issue Logan story about Logan's time in Japan. And it's mostly about like Logan crying about how emotionally vulnerable he is. So it's not my favorite. But it was released in a dual format, full color and black and white. That was very exciting at the time and back in 2008. And then later in 2008, Marvel's Eye of the Camera, a follow-up to Marvel's by Marvel, featuring Marvel, was published in black and white. Then they would take a, a kind of a step back and reimagine what they were doing. And we would get a trilogy of black and white titles from 2009 to 2010. Shang-Chi, Master of Kung Fu, black and white. Indomitable Iron Man, black and white. And Daredevil, black and white. How come Daredevil didn't get a cool fucking name? Anyway, so TK, had you checked out any of these other than perhaps Daredevil? No, I was not the least bit aware of any of these until you and I went over Daredevil black and white, which I have come to cherish. And now I need to obviously give these other ones a try as well. And let's talk about giving them a try. I was shocked by these creative credits. Now, I own all three of these, and I have to be really honest. Uh, this was definitely at a point in my life where I was buying more than I was reading. And I can say for sure that I did not read The Iron Man, even though I have it. And I'm positive I've read The Shang-Chi, but I don't know where if I could find it. Like, So this is definitely from a, a pretty rough point in my collection era. But what's interesting is how these books represent 2010 in a lot of ways. The Shang-Chi issue, probably on the strength of its popularity in retrospect, was written by Jonathan Hickman, first of fucking all, Jonathan fucking Hickman. And then it also features stories from Charlie Houston, Mike Benson, and Robin Firth, with art by Cody Chamberlain and Nelson, with like Nelson, like, like German hair metal. <laughs> 
Okay. Um, sure. And cover by Lucio Perillo. And so fascinating. This issue includes a story by Robin Firth, who is probably best known for his Dark Tower work. So it's kind of an interesting point of major creators on this one issue. This is like a decade before people cared about Shang-Chi in a big cultural way. I'm shocked to find this thing hasn't gotten more attention with a Deadpool appearance in it. Yeah. And, you know, looking at the cover to it, it's very striking because the thing that jumps out at you first is Shang-Chi in Converse. And oh, yeah. It right off the bat speaks to a concept of Shang-Chi that I think is much closer to what the MCU developed him as than a lot of what we saw in the comics in between then and now. And kind of what we see in the comics today. He's a very kind of elevated character, but there's a certain concept of him as a very street level character. And just that image is very much, I think, that street level Shang-Chi that is really important to how he's been developed for the MCU. I agree completely. I also think it's of note that this issue at 48 pages and $4, while the first of this line of titles coming out in November of 2009 with Iron Man in April 2010 and Daredevil following up in October of 2010, this Shang-Chi issue goes for like 10 times what the Iron Man issue goes for. And that's kind of interesting. This kind of represents where this was a bubbling point. People were getting interested. They were starting to take notice. This is probably what helped make the movie happen not this particular issue but this movement and so it's interesting that for a forgotten issue it's maybe treated with a little bit more respect from there you know the indomitable iron man issue iron man was just like everywhere in 2010 so it makes a lot of sense that this one might be more forgettable than others it's written by paul cornell a favorite of mine it's also written by howard chankin Dwayne Trzinski and alex irvine with art by will rosado manuel garcia stefano guadiano and nelson de castro oh i bet that's the guy's name <laughs> I bet that's the Nelson. It's just the the site I'm using is incomplete on information. Once again, we have a cover by Lucio Parillo, and I agree, these covers are so fucking striking, TK. There is something so purposefully, look how 70s we are, and I know that's the whole point. Like, this was meant to be, like, old-school Marvel mag, but I don't care about more random Iron Man stories at all. Yeah, I mean, I think especially when you look at this in the time period where it's coming out, where Iron Man is doing a huge turn to become the face of a very important sellable product for Marvel the comics start to feel less and less like you know no matter what they do no matter how great a story is Iron Man is going to forever be identified with most common denominator among fans of just the idea of Marvel this is going to be the guy that is the face of everything that can never be too extreme one way or the other because we all really have to love him and any story that gets too nitty gritty with that stuff is going to really be pushed by the wayside in favor of stories that are very, you know, if you saw the movie and loved it and wanted to pick up a comic book, you will read the comic and not be like, I have no idea who this character is. Everybody has to be able to know Iron Man. One of the reasons that that is so important to consider is because when we talk about these kinds of companies and when we talk about why they do what they do, you know, they're trying to think about a brand. And at this point in time, it was really important that Iron Man be that brand. He was what was bringing in all of the bank in the movies. Robert Downey Jr. took a character that, you know, before Robert Downey Jr.'s Iron Man, I have to admit, my favorite reference for Iron Man is from, I think it's from Biodome. Iron Man, Iron Man does whatever an iron can. 
And I think that's like the best thing you can say about early <laughs> Iron Man stories in a lot of ways. So when they decided to transform him and make him such a powerhouse in the Marvel Universe, I think they did a really great job because Iron Man was strong enough for a decade to lead the most successful film franchise of pretty much all time. And that tells us, if nothing else, that what they did with him in terms of a bigger cultural picture was necessary to the survival of Marvel as a company. But what it definitely led to was not really being sure who he is in the comics or why I care. I think the why I care question is the big thing. If you're a diehard comics person, it, the character is just... Uh, I mean, it, none of it's bad. It's just, it's very difficult to get invested when you're used to going to comic books for, if not every issue giving you in-depth storytelling, when you are a comic reader as a whole over years and decades and multiple issues and multiple stories, you build your own depth for a character based on all of those stories that you read. And with, with Iron Man, what Marvel was asking you to do was to really not find that depth, to really see him more as a face and a brand and and a name that could be like a flag. Very simple statements, very strong statements. And I, I mean, I love that. There are thousands of characters in the Marvel Universe. They don't all need to be the same thing. What it does mean sometimes, especially for comic book readers, is that certain characters that might have been beloved for certain reasons through many years of comics reading, you feel less and less able to connect with them for those same reasons because they are becoming something else. That's great. Marvel needed those things. It's going to lead to a lot of success for a film franchise and I think make it possible to tell great stories in the comics, this character is one that essentially has to be sacrificed for that. I think it's kind of like Batman syndrome. Yes. You know, where DC realized that everybody was getting this sort of goofy version of Batman from Batman Forever and Batman and Robin. So the comics went hard the other way. And I think they kind of managed to successfully avoid it there. We do not see it avoided over and over again throughout time. They definitely struggle with Superman. Sometimes when a person becomes the face of a corporation, they don't know what to do with them. Deadpool yep. too. Think about Deadpool. He went from keeping women chained up in basements and implicitly torturing them physically, mentally, emotionally, sexually, to just being kind of like, LOL, he's goofy. Chimichangas. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's good character rehab in some ways and in others, it's just you you underestimate the memory that we have and the expectations that we have for characters that are very front-facing. Yes, the memory. Because like, I love Deadpool now, but I just kind of pretend that Deadpool started around 1994. Right. It makes my life a lot easier if I just sort of pretend those earliest stories are like a different Weapon X person pretending to be him because otherwise he's too gross yep. and gets away with everything. Again, you do the work. Comic readers do the work for the characters that they love. And sometimes the intentions of a company that has a product to sell really go against the work that readers have to do. So a creator will come on to a book that has certain ideas for a character because maybe they created them in a certain way and they're being brought back on in a way that's very like fanfare. The original writer is back and you're thinking to yourself, but I worked so hard to repress all the stuff that the original writer did. And I get that the name is going to sell books, but for me, it becomes a challenge to my rehabilitation of this character. And that's one of the reasons I think Daredevil Black and White worked so well a few months later. October of 2010, we get Daredevil Black and White. Now we've discussed this a bit. Written by Peter Milligan, Rick Spears, and Anna Senti, with art by Jason Latour, Mick Bertolorenzi, and David Aja. And of course, a cover by David Aja, which is kind of shocking because the first two had very similar covers. And this one feels very different. It came out a bunch later. And while I definitely have the most relationship with this issue, I can see how maybe it feels the most different from the others. 
just by like different cover artists. And I don't know, I kind of feel like Daredevil really makes sense in black and white in some ways that like, I'm like, oh yeah, but Iron Man doesn't. Yeah, with Daredevil, there's a certain sense that you could say his visual limitations could be married to a limitation for the visuals of the book. Which is why it's so fascinating to me that Marvel then chose to take a bit of a break from the black and white motif and bring it back with black, white, and red with Wolverine in 2020. I feel like, you know, they started this black and white thing, at least our vantage point of this project with Wolverine in a big way. The first four issues were Wolverine 32 and then Logan 1 through 3. And so when Wolverine shows back up with black, white, and blood in 2020, everybody's like, oh, this is just like that Harley Quinn project. And I'm like, yeah, but there have been other similar projects at many companies in the last few years. I'm really interested to what maybe led them to this span of characters Wolverine Deadpool Carnage Electra I really see where Wolverine because blood Deadpool because bloody and red I guess you know Carnage visually makes sense even if I have no interest in Carnage <laughs> But like, I am fascinated that this seems to be the first time they're really investing in a woman in black and white. The costume and the job just are the things that spring to mind. It seems off in some ways because it just seems like one of these things is not like the other. But at the same time, you can pull elements together and be like, I don't know, I guess like maybe for the purpose of what would be really easy to stay on theme, this actually is a great character. And I think that that's part of the struggle here, designing the best characters or the best book based on the characters. And I think that's probably why we've seen such varying levels of success with these titles. We liked most of Wolverine, Black, White, and Blood. I liked much of Deadpool, Black, White, and Blood. I honestly didn't read Carnage, Black, White, and Blood. Elektra has been mostly really amazing. I'm really interested, though, in that Moon Knight is coming next and only going to be two issues. Huh. I did not realize either thing. So it's really fascinating to see where things are headed with these black and white lines. And I'm very excited to know where we're headed in the future. Very curious. I will always be watching now for references to these stories or people who feel like their conception of these characters, most particularly Elektra, Wolverine and Deadpool, there's just too much going on anyway. And Carnage, I'm not going to follow up on those stories. But with Elektra, I will always be curious when I see her in a book, do I see references to some of the stories from Black, White, and Blood or? do I see this is clearly somebody who read that and took inspiration? So all of that said, we're here to talk about the final two stories of Electra, Black, White, and Red number three. Now, we loved that first story so much that we wanted to cover it all on its own. And that doesn't mean, though, that we don't have amazing room in our hearts for these two stories. Now, the first story, we're going to be taking a look at With a Passion by Paul Azaceda, who served as the writer, artist, and colorist on the entire story, as well as Weapons of Choice by David Papoz, Danilo Beiruth, and Andres Mosa. So these two stories both really utilized black and white and red. I perhaps think the color work was the thing I appreciated the most on these stories because I felt maybe a little disconnected from the Electra, specifically in the second story. Yeah, visually, I was drawn to each panel and each page. And then when I was checking on what was actually happening story-wise, for me, it was one that I wasn't necessarily connecting with. I saw elements there that I felt like I can understand that for Electra, but how they were playing out didn't really speak to me. And especially just this is one of two or three stories that I've reviewed for, I think Electra specifically, but for Black, White, and Blood, where the vibe is very pop art and that always 
always really speaks to me. There's also like screen printing aesthetic to this that I really love. And those aesthetics are eye catching and they draw you to every panel. But the story is not necessarily supporting the quality of the art. Because the story seems to be essentially from Electra's perspective that she is deeply torn inside about whether or not she is an assassin, a killer, or if she is too linked to Daredevil to be that person anymore. I'm really not sure the best way to uh, to uh, address this because it's not that I don't appreciate where the story is coming from. I don't want Electra to just one day be like, no, I'm a good guy. It's fine. Like, that's not what I'm looking for. I wonder if perhaps the amount of sexuality mixed with the amount of violence and the suffering perspective that Electra is going through is part of what disconnected me from the story. Yeah, I mean, you can sort of distill it even simpler, like, is she horny or does she want to kill? Which is just a weird juxtaposition. Again, like, there are some gorgeous scenes. There's a large panel of her kissing Matt and he's in the Daredevil costume and the reds, all the colors, the three colors are just working together so well but then you get to the next page and it just goes a little bit too far with the horniness and then the following page it goes too far with the conflict and the murder it it just never gels in a way that seems to respect the idea that a person can be conflicted in a way that isn't just for spectacle for me while i appreciate sort of the elements of conflict and you know even the kind of the humor the idea of is she horny or does she want to kill while it is something that I feel like is authentic to the character the way you explore it has to feel respectful and like it's building something more for her and here it just feels like it's kind of for a mix of aesthetics and something between spectacle and male gaze it doesn't feel especially elevating of the humanity of Electro because the humanity is the one thing that like snuck in in little pieces like the humanity is kind of what found its way into the story where she's like, oh, can I kill this person? Ugh. But I feel like so much of the story was about Matt. And like, that's maybe the thing I liked the most about a lot of these stories. They didn't involve Matt. They didn't use his name much. They were about Electra, And this one was about like, I don't want to say, is it just dick so good? Right? Like, I don't want to make it that basic. No, but it, there are moments where you feel like that. I don't think that was the intention. There are moments where you're like, is that all that I'm getting? here like I kind of need to dig for more and it's not that it's not there to dig for because like the art in this tells such an incredible story in and of itself Paul as I say does art on this narrative is so powerful and gripping and there's a visual to it that really draws me in but again, I think it's really just maybe if the dialogue was slightly tweaked or maybe if Electra wasn't in such suffering tumult. Overall, I still don't feel like my time was wasted, but I do have some questions about how this story fits in with the other nine in the first three issues. And I would have some questions if, again, you know, I say like I want to see people build off of these stories or take inspiration from them. If this was one, I would be very curious where a writer was going with it. And again, I think the biggest thing is that just the absolute anguish of electrosexuality is maybe one step too far. And it gorgeously depicted. There's some of these, like a couple of anguish panels like in a story like this, absolutely fantastic. There are just so many of them. It's such a repeated thing. And even when the aesthetic is there, the fact that it's for character work, it's happening so much. I just, I hope it's not a way that people will perceive Electra going forward. 
which I even wonder if that's why it's kind of sandwiched in the middle. Sort of like, you know, there's songs that are great songs. Such a great fucking song. But when you put it between two like super bangers, if it's kind of like a melodramatic song, kind of sounds like an asshole. You know what I mean? Yeah. Right? Like it sounds not good. Or like when your friend's a great singer and you're like encouraging your friend and you're like, yeah, get up there and sing. And they inexplicably have to go between the two greatest karaoke singers of all time. It's not that this story really doesn't work so much as the first story is a dynamic tale between Electra and Typhoid Mary in a way that removes Daredevil, but still has it be women from within Daredevil's life without defining them by Daredevil, such that you could not know Typhoid Mary was a Daredevil love interest. And I think the other thing about that first Anasenti story is it deals with an idea of mental illness that isn't women are hysterical or, you know, woman in an institution suffering. It's really like right off the bat, the first panel is like, I have been put here. I don't actually need to be here. And now I'm just going to get out. So the follow-up story features Black Widow, and Black Widow is another one of Daredevil's love interests, another character that is connected to Matt, but once again, she's used here in a way that definitely does not feel like it's about Matt, and I appreciated that. I think it's really funny that I'm getting you to read a Black Widow story involving the Daredevil universe, and it does not have Daredevil. Yeah, it's great. Same thing with the Mary story. It is completely plausible that these two trained assassin women would encounter each other in their work and not only is that plausible but because they both have romantic relationships with daredevil it's very important that we get a story like this where they encounter each other and they're not cat fighting or something stupid like that they're both doing their jobs and it has nothing to do with a shared romance that they've had now, how did you feel about combining Electra and Black Widow into a single story? They're both larger-than-life women, and we've had so much incredible success with that in the last couple of years with Emma Frost and Kate Pride and Emma Frost and Storm, all three of them sharing time in Marauders together, with Emma and Electra thriving over in the pages of X-Men Devil's Reign, and even Electra and Typhoid Mary's occasional kind of slightly unconventional team-up-ish sort of thing in the pages of Daredevil. So, like... We We've had a lot of powerful women team ups lately. How did you feel about this? One? I mean, these two are really interesting because in some ways, larger than life, larger than life recognizability, larger than life ability to fit into a story. But also in terms of character and function, you can sort of perfectly situate them anywhere so they don't feel too large. They can be inserted into any story in a way that feels like, well, of course they're there. They're assassins with a mission. They just figured out how to show up. They snuck in the back. And the idea that they would end up in a situation where they they are coming together and it doesn't feel like there's not enough room on the page for both of them, but that they are two people with similar functions who are clashing over the, that overlap. It's really fun. It makes a ton of sense. Again, these are, of course, two people that encountered each other in their history throughout the Marvel Universe. I also thought that there was a really dynamic sense of including elements from outside of their history in the Marvel Universe, but rather, I mean, don't get me wrong, the Red Room stuff and multiple Red Room kids, that's a thing. That's not like new, right? Yeah. But that's gotten a lot of play in Black Widow. Yes. Very recently. Yes. Now, if I did have one comment, I thought the art on this one was a little tough. Not bad. Not like the worst thing I've ever read. I'd really been appreciating a level of polish on these stories. There's a sort of like um, a 1980s eyeglass wear advertisement quality to a lot of stuff involving Elektra as a result of Sienkiewicz. And because like, you know, Sienkiewicz is sort of like if you take the capitalism out of eyeglass 1980s advertisements, <laughs> that's really what 
you know, Sienkiewicz always looks like. It's that very block, and then it's like giant diagonal shape of red, <laughs> and then it's like a pair of sunglasses and a sigh, and you know that's meant to be Electra walking down the street. So this had a very indie comics vibe, which is beautiful and amazing and great and totally belongs and has so much place in the Marvel oeuvre. But I thought as the third story here, it was not best suited to the art that it was featured with. And all I mean by that is, guys, when you're talking about an anthology, it's an anthology. Like this shares space with other titles. Think about how they look together. Yeah, this is an artist that I would have seen if you had told me that we were getting a four issue mini of Electra and Black Widow. I absolutely could see this artist drawing all four issues and they would have been great issues and I really would have enjoyed it. And I really did enjoy this, but juxtaposed with the other two stories in this issue and with the other stories that we've seen in this title overall, they're all so form and this is very function. I like your use of form versus function because that really is a big thing when it comes to these vanity projects. I think that vanity projects often benefit from having so much design to them. Yeah. Like, I don't come to a black, white, and blood special because I'm going to get hard-hitting canon that's going to change the way I feel about Electra forever. I would like it if there was hard-hitting canon. I would like it if it affected the way I felt about Electra, but I don't need it to change Electra's narrative forever. That we got one in split was beautiful so i'm not saying why didn't these do that there's just something maybe just slightly off the mark about these three stories together in this issue at once all t- it's i don't know it's i like them separately for sure maybe split more than the others but there's just something about the way this three doesn't sit on the shelf and this is the kind of analysis where you know if somebody came to us and said hey can you edit these books and we have all these stories will you put them together we might have done it differently i don't think either of us is saying Saying, this is the wrong way to do it. I just think we have a different vision for how this all plays out. And I'm also really fascinated by the shipping on this book. I don't know if it's paper shortage, shipping errors, delays, changes, what. But the third issue's final page says final issue in March. Well, now the final (laughs) issue comes out in May because this one came out in April. So we're definitely running a little behind on this title. And that means this is going to end after Devil's Reign. And that really makes me feel funny. We got so many Electra miniseries all at once. We got Electra, the woman without fear in the form of Daredevil, the woman without fear. We got Electra, Black, White, and Blood, one through four. We're getting Electra 1000 next month. There's so much going. She's in the Thunderbolts again, and she's going to still be in Daredevil, and there's going to be a Devil's Reign Omega. Wait, is she in Thunderbolts or Savage Avengers? Oh, it's Savage Avengers, right. I keep thinking that the Thunderbolts are the Savage Avengers, and the Savage Avengers are- Weird ways they kind of are, but whatever. Let's just start calling the Savage Thunderbolts. I love so, it. So it's it's so much Electra yeah. all at once. And like that it didn't ship on top. Like I, I maybe would have rather just a year of nachos, <laughs> right? Which sounds like something you can win on a really cheap game show. But I would just really rather like a year of Electra than some weird timing on shipping. If it hadn't been that this was an anthology title, it would not have worked. No, absolutely not. And I think the other element is how the next run of Daredevil, where it's going to be Matt and Electra as Daredevil, written by Chip Zdarsky is a big unknown for us in terms of how this is all
all going to weave together. So one of the things that's very interesting about the second story here being by Paul Azaceta is Paul Azaceta is actually kind of been on Punisher on and off for like a decade. And beyond that, he will be joining Jesus Cesc and Jason Aaron on the new run of Punisher. But like to add to that, this guy also did Punisher Noir, which is kind of worth mentioning because kind of like a noir title, just kind of like a, a separate kind of, not exactly like a black, white and red story where it's fully out of canon, you know, which, which it is. But, you know, it's interesting that he keeps running in this sort of not quite the main book circles. But since he's going to be on Punisher, we know Punisher is going to be coming up against Daredevil and Elektra due to his involvement with the hand from our previous coverage of Punisher number one. So talking about full circle, this brings us on a collision course with Daredevil, Punisher and Elektra. Side note, Elektra and Punisher kind of dated when they were on the Thunderbolts at one point. So and then they were on the Savage Avengers together. I'm really curious about how all of these people don't run into each other more often at family parties. Because none of them really have families. Frank sure don't. It's just really interesting because I think we're seeing Marvel try to do something with their Marvel Knights level characters that they haven't tried doing since Joey Q was in charge of everything, where we've got Punisher, Elektra, and Daredevil that are clearly running like these three parallel narratives at each other across two books. I'm really excited to see how that plays out, but now I'm really curious. Does that mean that Azaceta's interpretation of Elektra is in any way indicative of the future? I think that's a really important question, especially when it comes to talking about the fact that everything we have seen is the juxtaposition of Electra's time with the hand and her time doing this mission as the fist with Punisher now leading the hand. Like it's a very, the conflict has been set up immediately. And again, we're seeing an example of where somebody could take inspiration from themselves and a story that they've written and a conception of Electra that they have and inserting it into a very long-term vision for the characters. And it leads me to a really upset, confused, happy, excited, and dramatic place. I can't help but think if the Punisher now has access to the hand, it's going to be to resurrect him. I don't think Punisher is going to stay dead if he dies anytime soon. So wait, Punisher can be resurrected. The Eternals can be resurrected. The X-Men can be resurrected. And Miracle Man is coming back to judge everybody for messing with the fabric of reality. I don't know as a fact that Punisher is going to get resurrected, right? I mean, I just want to make everything about Miracle Man if I can, but I don't know that Punisher is going to get resurrected. I have no reason to necessarily even be sure of it outside of the fact that, you know, that's kind of what the hand does. This is such an unbelievable place we are heading toward that the Punisher would have the hand on his side. How does, I mean, he already hates Daredevil, but now like, I mean, don't get me wrong, Daredevil's always right, but between him and Punisher, Daredevil's wrong about so many things. But between him and Punisher, Punisher's like, yeah, who cares if you kill some people? They can even be kids. Daredevil's a little bit more like, kill fewer kids, right? So I'm kind of with Daredevil here, but this time, Frank is fucking wrong, man. Like, Frank is working with the devil, literally. Yeah, I mean... I Oh, God. And to even argue with this or to say that I'm playing devil's advocate is the worst thing ever. But he has this purgatory. (laughs) He has this vision of taking out people who make the world worse and that being the right thing to do. And he has found a tool that functions on death and murder. The hand doesn't care if it's killing bad guys. It just cares if it's killing. And the Punisher wants to kill bad guys. 
the fact that it makes sense is genius from a narrative standpoint. I'm not saying that the Punisher is right. I'm saying that the idea that somebody was like, oh, we have to put these two together and figure out what it means for both the Punisher and the Hand, but then on the flip side of things, Elektra and Daredevil, like all of these things coming together, the conflict that Matt and Frank had from the very start of the Zadarsky run coming back. And I mean, obviously they've had it before that, but that's just my most recent reference. All of this coming together again, getting built up in a way that is sure to be very problematic and destructive, but really fascinating. Because at the end of the day, these characters have been locked in an like eternal struggle. There's always this sort of sense of it had to happen. Yeah. Daredevil versus Elektra. It had to happen. Daredevil versus Punisher. And we even had it had to happen. Punisher versus Elektra. What's really fascinating about all of this and Devil's Reign spoilers. Do, 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 do. Turn this the fuck off. If you don't want to know that Kingpin is out, Mary is out. You just took away the two biggest antagonists of Matt's life ever, kind of, but for the last three years, if nothing else, Bullseye is vaguely off the table unless the hand resurrects Bullseye for Punisher, I guess. I don't know. But you just took the biggest motherfucking players off the table and you set yourselves up with a new massive player who you're so going to convince us is a threat that you gave him his own book. That was the that was the, the real stunning part. We're not coming up against a new villain for Matt, which every writer wants to do. Oh, there's this new bad guy in the hand. Yeah, there is a new bad guy in the hand, but you know him. It's the Punisher. The Punisher is a concept that Marvel's not going to be willing to kill off like they might be willing to kill off the Kingpin. Marvel is not going to be willing to kill off the Punisher the way they might be willing to kill off Diablo or like Arcade. So making it the Punisher, yeah, I'm really fucking invested. Well, and the other thing is they're not ever going to say the Punisher is an out-and-out villain that is 100% wrong and must be stopped. It is always going to be a much more complicated struggle in which Frank is going to make some valid points about bad things that have happened because Matt didn't take the same actions that Frank would have taken. How many people had to die in Devil's Reign because Matt couldn't do what Frank felt had to be done to Wilson? Precisely. I could not be more excited to see where all of this is going and, you know, this all started with talking about Elektra. And I just want to say for a second. So, you know, everybody knows that I, I talk about comics way too much. And I love doing these comic book histories. And I have a secret project coming up with this incredible gentleman right here. And in it, we're reading a very different Elektra. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. If you want to if you want to read how far off Elektra you can wind up and still have it be technically referred to on page as Elektra, I guess, you can look no further than the MC2 universe scroll electra was more believably electra than the mc2 alternate future based somewhere around 1998 what if wolverine and electra got married and had a daughter and her name was rena the wild thing that's right she's wolverina and Electra is just like a mom jeans model. Like it's, oh Lord, it's so good. And it's, it's so good. Join so us bad. on this journey. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's like, a, it's not exactly like Birdemic or The Room where you're like, some of this is a car accident, but it's, 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 it's exciting to see what didn't work sometimes. Yep, right. Absolutely. Especially when we're talking about something like this, where like so much is working. Exactly. Exactly. That's how I feel about this Electra thing. You yep. know what? I maybe thought that the second story didn't work for me, but that does 
doesn't mean that it didn't work as a story. I thought there were maybe elements that were perhaps a little problematic, which we mentioned. There's some gender identity ideas that I maybe would have felt a little bit more comfortable if a female voice had been introduced to the story to make sure that there's a more balanced perspective on gender politic. But I am still, this is a take on a character who we celebrate for her many facets and her mysteriousness. You're not going to love every fucking side of a diamond, but it's still got all of them. And if you want the diamond, you take every facet. And the fact of the matter is with comics, one of the most fun things is sometimes you get a story where you're like, I don't love the story beats. I don't love the dialogue. I don't love the thought bubbles, but the art just slams. And the aesthetic in the second story is so perfect for Electra and so gorgeous that even if I didn't connect with the story, I'm still going to remember this one because of the art. It's going to be some that I identify with Electra. I now just realized through you saying that, that identification and, and iconography, I wonder if Moon Knight's getting a two-part story next because Punisher is going to get the one after that and they want to wait until you're more familiar with his black, white, and red costume before they make it about his new black, white, and red costume. Because they Fascinating. Yeah, they keep frequently showing the redone hand logo in red. Yep. So I wonder if they just wanted time to ramp it up because while the book is set to come out over a year, I feel like we haven't talked about it in a couple of weeks, so maybe it's already delayed. I don't know. Uh, But, you know, it's never like, oh, it's delayed. It's kind of like, guys, they're having trouble killing enough trees to make these books so it's not like you know john cassidy is like yeah i just haven't drawn kitty in a few weeks here's a new cover it's it's more like you know we can't seem to make the books appear fast enough i can't wait to come back and talk about electra black white and blood number four and you know what i have to assume our moon knight team is just gonna go straight ahead and do moon knight black white and blood for us so i can't wait for that either but until then tk if they want to catch more of you before our mc2 project starts where can everybody find you online you can find me on twitter and instagram at x nate x gray x and as always you guys can find me on twitter and instagram at nico action that's n-i-c-o-a-c-t-i-o-n where i talk all about my music my comics editing this show fitness and more you guys can also check me out and i'm so grateful to be a part of this incredible collection in the upcoming young men in love anthology coming out in june for pride month you guys can pre-order that from diamond comics or your local lcs it's got incredible creators in it like anthony Oliveira, joe glass cena grace like i am in such unbelievable company i can't even say it it even features amazing voices like terry blas who we've had on the show multiple times and i can't wait for you guys to check that out but until that day mc2 starts or the next x is for podcast keep those mutant lights lit those cohen gateways open keep your comics black white and red and we'll see you on the other side bye 